Just out of interest, was, is there anyone here who attended the seminar in Florida um, that was um, Garden Herbs to Salves and Creams? Okay, I, have, I see a couple. All right, good. This will um, have some similar content, but it will be more specific to healing saps. So I'm glad that you're here um, to enjoy this with us. Um, and thank you for that introduction. That saves me a little bit of time. <laughs> so we will jump right in. Uh, and let's see, is that focused enough? All right. So our topic today is healing salves. And I have a passion for uh, herbs that can be found local or you can grow locally in your area. I believe that God has put so much in nature for us to take advantage of. And it's a blessing that we can now have herbs shipped to us from um, places like China or South America. But I think that God has given us plants right around us that we walk on every day that have medicinal properties. And so I really want to empower you to look for those plants that are right around you or that you can grow. So we're going to look at some mostly topical herbs. This is about salves, and that's a topical um, application. But we're also going to look at some other salves that are commonly um, used internally. Excellent. Got the thumbs up. But... As I like to share on a topic, um, it gives me the opportunity to also look more deeply into the spiritual applications as well. And I think as we study the physical and the spiritual together, we will gain a deeper understanding um, and a holistic view as God um, wants us to understand holistic. The, bio, the world talks about holistic, but I think God has a different definition of what holistic looks like. So the only place in the Bible or the King James Version, that the word salve specifically is used, is a very familiar verse that we find in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 18. It's the message for our time, right? And God is counseling the church of Laodicea to buy from him gold tried in the fire, white raiment that we may be clothed, and eye salve that we can see. Is this a physical salve? Is this something that we can get from him to put on? Or is this a spiritual salve? It's a spiritual salve. Uh, and we understand that as we look at some other Bible verses. Jeremiah says, Hear now this, O foolish people, and without understanding, which have eyes and see not, and have ears and hear not. So it's not about a physical seeing and a physical hearing, but a spiritual one. Also, in Jeremiah, it says, it's a rhetorical question. Is there no bomb? That's a salve. Is there no healing ointment? Is there no bomb in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is the health of the daughter of my people recovered? Why not? Why is it not recovered? Why aren't we healed? If there is something there, why are we still sick? And Isaiah uh, helps us to understand this further. It says, Why should you be stricken anymore? Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. Does that sound like something you would want to salve for? You would want to salve for those types of things. And it says, They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. 
So the Bible has a lot to say about this topic, and I just want to, in this, encourage you to start your own study, because it's not so much me sharing what I've gained from this study, but to say there's a rich Bible study here for you seeking to learn about salves, of what the spiritual salve that God has for us. And just a simple Google, um, Ellen White search on um, ISAV will reveal the different, there's steps in what the ISAV is to do. It's supposed to help us to see our need, to open our eyes. We're blind. We don't accept the bomb. Is there no bomb in Gilead, the Bible asks? Help us to see our need. And also, to uh, when we see our need, to know where to get the relief from, to get the salve from, and also to have discernment, to have spiritual judgment on how to make decisions for the times that we live in, these crucial times. We need that spiritual eyesight. So that's just a little a teaser, a little encouragement. Go and search out because this is a message for the church of Laodicea that we need to hear today. So what is that salve that God wants us to have today? Now, there's the spiritual and there's the physical. So now we're going to jump into the physical salve. But first, a promise. Found in Psalms 146, verse 8. The Lord openeth the eyes of the blind. The Lord raiseth them up that are bowed down. The Lord loveth the righteous. So is there a bomb in Gilead? There is. And the Lord is the one who can help us open our eyes. We're going to start our study of this topic with a little quote. It's of God's healing power. God's healing power runs all through nature. If a tree is cut, if a human being is wounded or breaks a bone, nature begins at once to repair the injury. Even before the need exists, the healing agencies are in readiness. And as soon as a part is wounded, every energy is bent to the work of restoration. So it is in the spiritual realm. Before sin created the need, God had provided the remedy. Every soul that yields to temptation is wounded, bruised by the adversary. But whenever there is sin, there is a Savior. It is Christ's work to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captive, to set at liberty them that are bruised. So as you get into this work of creating salves, I want you to know that you are working with the Creator, because it's His work to heal. And so you have a divine helper with you as you're creating these simple natural remedies. So where are we going to start? If you can see the fine print, it says, what do I need and what do I have? As I said at the beginning, I like to look at what's around in your area. And we're going to look at sp- like herbs that are common across the United States, uh, generally, because... Oftentimes, they're weeds, and weeds travel very well. So, what are your options? Things that you can grow or forage? What do you need? So, location. It's good to know where you live and what will thrive well there. Um, And this is, you're all farmers or familiar with agriculture, so you know kind of your area. Uh, but what will you use is, is also important. What do you love? What do you enjoy? Because as you enjoy something, it makes it more um, just 
restorative when you find pleasure in it. And lastly, what is it a a noxious weed? And I found this um, poster at our DMV locally there in Utah. Very interesting because it caught my attention because I love plants. But up there you'll see um, I blew up it's common St. John's wort, Japanese knotweed, and purple loosestrife. In uh, my herbal apprenticeship, I learned that these were herbs, not weeds. But apparently, the farmers or the ranchers don't appreciate the St. John's wort so well when their cattle eat it and their skin gets more sensitive to the sun. So if you're thinking about transplanting or you find out about an herb that's really wonderful, um, before you bring it home to where you are, Make sure you're not bringing home something that um, is going to be causing problems for your neighbor. Instead, go and see if your neighbor already has it, and you can harvest it from them, and then you'll be creating a solution and not a problem. In Maine, purple loosestrife is also a big weed, and uh, one of the herbalists that I uh, was learning and studying with said, well, all the herbalists should just go and harvest all the purple loosestrife, and we'll be you know, solving a, a problem of ecology around us. So just be aware, um, and you can find out what are the more noxious weeds, because a lot of these plants are considered um, weeds. So just be aware of that. And we'll look a little more into that too. So for just general growing guidelines, these are the principles. A lot of um, herbs like a lot of sunshine. Some prefer shade, and you'll learn that as you go along. But generally, sunshine, well-drained soil, they aren't very picky. Usually they can tolerate um, not very rich soil. And they really like to be pruned. The more that, but the general rule for pruning is you don't want to take off more than um, a third of the plant when you're harvesting so that it can keep producing. But they like the regular pruning because that um, helps them to grow back more bushy um, next time. So just a quick consideration for um, the placement of herbs. How does it reproduce? So uh, some of our lovely students last year really enjoyed this mint plant that was right in the middle of our greenhouse. So they, they had their own beds that they could do, and they all decided that they wanted to grow some mint in their own personal beds. But if you're aware of how mint reproduces, if you leave even a little piece of that root in where the bed is when you're done with growing mint that season, because the students go on to do something else, then you're going to have it year after year, and it's going to turn into a weed. So be aware of how the plant reproduces so you can know, is this a permanent home? Is this a temporary? Is this a perennial? Does it come back by the roots? Does it come back by seeds? How aggressive is it? So be aware of how it grows, perennial or annual. Is it invasive? You might want to plant it you know, on the back 40 where you won't be having problems with it getting into your market garden or into your lovely flower garden that you're trying to cultivate specifically for selling for different reasons. Um, and what will you use it for? If you're going to be using it as like a culinary herb or something you want to use for cooking on a regular basis, bring it closer to the house so that way you will use it more. It's nice to have all of these um, herbs and mints, but if they're not close and you want to use them fresh, you're not going to end up using them, right? That's just how we are. If it's not convenient, then we don't do it. So just 
Think about that as you think about how you want to, um, where you want to plant it. Another example of planting a good herb in a bad spot is chamomile. Chamomile produces very easily by seed, and so uh, if you aren't careful, next year you'll have chamomile in all of your other herb beds. So just be aware of that. If you have a very windy area, maybe plant it downwind of the other things that you don't want it to come back um, to haunt you. Yeah, and some a lot of uh, herbalists will plant more beautiful herbs um, along, like the entrance of their area of their uh, just their property, so that you can enjoy the beauty. Again, if you're planting beautiful herbs, but they're way in the back of the garden, then you won't be able to enjoy them as much. So just consider that. Um, but some herbs you will need to rotate if they aren't uh, perennials because they may have some diseases. And so just keeping that in, in your, uh, like one example of that is echinacea and calendula. They're both part of the aster family. And if you plant them in the same spot year after year, they can get a disease called, well, there's a little, um, oh, I'm blanking on what exactly it is. But they can get a disease, I think it's called aster yellows or aster but there's a disease that will affect them. And so if you plant them, because they are not uh, perennials per se, um, although echinacea does come back for several years, you want to rotate them. So just be aware of families and diseases as well. Processing principles. Again, you can buy your herbs, but there's nothing like harvesting fresh herbs for getting the, the highest medicinal quality and for a while, I was a little bit, when it came to um, producing my own, I um, maybe was, I doubted myself, maybe you could say. And I was thinking, well, maybe, maybe theirs is better than mine. But the closer that it is to you, the fresher it is, you know everything about it. You know how clean it was. And you can control the quality of your herb. So um, these are some principles to make sure that you have the best quality when you're harvesting it. Um, harvest only what you can process immediately. You don't want to have a lot of herbs, and then, but you have an appointment in an hour, and then it just is sitting there, and it starts to get moldy. So you want to only process, only harvest what you can process immediately. No. Give yourself that time budget. And then um, remove any dirt or other undesired matter. Most aerial parts of the plant, you're not going to wash. Um, with herbs. You're just going to harvest them clean and dry on a sunny day. So um, if there is anything on that plant, try to brush it off, maybe even before you harvest it. Um, one example of, of this was I planted some calendula this last year, and we get a lot of wind where we are, and the wind would just come um, right through and blow all kinds of sand and dust into my calendula. And I was just looking at that and thinking, oh no, like, because calendula flowers are harvested specifically for their resin. They're the, it's a sticky resin that they have. And that dust just grabs onto that sticky resin. I was thinking, this is so bad. <laughs> how, like, I can't use it, or how am I going to use it, or how am I going to clean it? Because you don't really want to wash the flowers, you want them to just dry. But thankfully, my husband planted some corn 
just west of my calendula. So after the corn got tall, they were a wind block for my calendula. And the last half of the season, I had such perfect calendula because it was just in a nice sunny spot and it didn't have the wind blowing all the sand over it. So just being aware of, is this a good, safe spot where it can grow and stay clean through the process? So the next is after um, you harvest it, you want to harvest it on a sunny day between 9 and 3. Even better between uh, 10 and 2 when the sun is up in the sky because that's when the, the flower is open, when the energy, if you'll allow me to use that term, when the plant is just alive. It's not asleep for the night. So between um, 10 and 2 is the best time to harvest your herb um, and on a sunny day. If it's wet, again, we want to get keep it as dry as possible. We want to, um, yeah, just keep your herbs dry, so harvest it on a sunny day. And in the, in the middle of the day is best. Uh, and for drying it, lay it like one to two layers thick on a screen, spread it out so it can dry properly. And depending on what uh, plant it is, it will depend, and where, what your climate is, will determine how long you need to dry your plants. So where we are in Utah, it's very dry, so plants can dry in 24 hours easily. If you're on the East Coast, that is unheard of, and it might be like more like seven days. So you just have to be checking it. And um, how many people have made granola? Do you, the way I know my granola is done is by pushing my hands through it, and it makes this lovely sound of dryness. I don't know. I really like sounds. So your um, herbs will have that similar dry, crinkly sound when they're dry. Um, things like flowers, like calendula, again, has a very thick center, and that is a place where it's more likely to hold moisture. So that's the part that you want to you find the thickest part of your plant and look at that part to see if it's completely dry. Um, and there's a book um, that I think Adagra carries, and it's called The Organic Medicinal Herb Grower's Manual or something. It's a nice, thick, big book, and they have in the back section a uh, section all about processing herbs and how to, uh, like specific herbs that they recommend growing. It's a very nice book if you're considering growing medicinal plants, and that has a nice section on how to know um, for each different plant, how they dry it. So spread it out on a screen, one layer thick, and leave it depending on your environment. And most herbs dry um, in a temperature between 90 and 110 degrees. Some may need a little bit more, especially if it's a root. And speaking of roots, if it is a root, we said we don't wash our herbs generally, but if it's a, a root, you're going to want to wash it right away and chop it up because if you let it dry whole, you will have nightmares later trying to um, chop it up because it will dry as hard as a rock. So chop it up and dry it and wash it. And, and that might take a little longer because it's a little bit more dense. Okay, we want to keep the air circulating as it's drying. Uh, I think we basically talked about all these. 
higher moisture take longer and roots require chopping. Fresh herbs can be stored for a few days in the refrigerator in a plastic bag. Um, but generally, the best principle is just to process it as soon, and you'll have the highest medicinal content. Now, how to store your herb once it's been dry? There's three things that deteriorate your plant matter, and that's air, light, and moisture. And that's why you'll see, when you, if you buy herbs online, they're usually packaged in a dark bag or a, a bag that doesn't allow any light through. So uh, make sure your herbs are dry. They're kept away from the light, and if you have something um, to suck the air out of the container, even better. Um, plastic bags, even if they're stored in a dark place, they still breathe to some extent. So if you're trying to keep them for a long time, um, glass would probably be better, but I definitely still store my things in plastic bags and boxes or so because I'm cheap and that's what I have, and I, I'm not doing it for a commercial type of a level. It's just personal use. But if you were doing it and you wanted the highest quality, you want to have something that's not going to um, that's not going to allow moisture into it. Okay, so just for an overview, we're going to um, look at some of the different external preparations, but we're going to focus specifically on salves and oils. So you have things like washes and compresses, fomentations, um, oils, and oint ointments or liniments. Uh, that's a something where you're usually combining like a, a liquid, a water part with an oil. So it might be something like alcohol or witch hazel or just a different... Um, liquid that's not an oil with an oil. Or it could only be like a witch hazel would be considered a liniment, a witch hazel that's infused with herbs. Salves and lip balms and creams and essential oils. Those are the general external preparations that you're going to um, be using. And sometimes a salve might not be the most appropriate. Maybe something more like a wash if you have a a wound that you just need to clean and you want some uh, antiseptic herbs in that wash. That could be as simple as making a cup of tea is like what a wash is. Um, fomentations is more of a compress. It's something that maybe um, it's like a tea, but then you soak a piece of cloth into it and then you apply it externally and usually with a little heat. Um, but we'll take a look more directly at how to make your own medicinal oils and salves. So what is the difference between an infused oil and an essential oil? That's a question that um, I know a lot of people have because, uh, at least I did at the beginning, um, an essential oil is, are made through the distillation process that captures the volatile oils of the herb. Um, and an herbal or infused oil is a medicinal herbal oil. It extracts the physical constituents of the plant into the oil or medium. So a little bit more specifically on the essential oil, how that works, because I know that's something that a lot of people you know, are interested in understanding better. And if you go to the Castle Valley Daystar booth, you'll see our essential oil distiller there, and you can get an up-close look at it. 
But just for now, um, first you have a, a heating element there at the bottom. Then there's the water in that boiling chamber. Next you see the distilling flask. That's where your plant matter goes. And the steam chamber, the condensing chamber, and the essential oil separator and receptacle. So the water, it's a distillation, so it's, the water is heating up and traveling through the plant matter. The volatile oils travel with the steam up through the steam chamber. And then if you see there on the condensing chamber, there's a, a tube, and that will be hooked up to a faucet. Oh, I can use my finger. So there's a, the condensing chamber. This, this tube right here is hooked up to a sink that we can't see in that direction. And there's a constant flow of water. The water flows in and then flows out. And um, that is keeping it cool. So it's condensing the steam. And then the steam drips down here with the hydrosol, the plant water, um, sinking to the bottom and the plant oil floating to the top. When there gets to be too much plant water, the hydrosol overflows into this flask and the um, essential oil remains on the top, floating up until it's done. And this process can take anywhere like about an hour to two hours. Um, and the, the majority of the oil that you'll get will be in the first um, half an hour after the, oil, the water comes to a good boil. Um, so if it takes a while for your water to boil, it will take longer. Sorry, I have to keep breathing. Okay, it's a water break. Everybody get your water out. All right, very good. And that's probably the most important thing you can do to help your healing and your wounds is drinking plenty of water. So I very much encourage that. Um, okay, so that's essential oils in a nutshell. There's different ways to make essential oils. Um, this is the, most, the main one for most plants for things that have a high oil content like um, orange peels or lemon, they have another way of extracting the essential oils from those, but this is the main one for um, plants that are like leaves and blossoms. Okay, okay. so again on volatile oils, they are considered the, the immune system of the plant. While their roles aren't fully understood, they aid to attract pollinators and deterring pests um, and parasites. Volatile oils have a wide range of actions from relaxing to stimulating, from irritating to analgesic or pain relieving. Um, and yeah, quickly, a little bit more on essential oils, the way that they work with our bodies is they stimulate the olfactory system of the brain. Something fascinating to me is they pass from the lungs directly to other organs. You know the quickest way to get something into your bloodstream? Is breathing it. Yes, that's right. It's because there's a one cell barrier. That's why smoking is so addictive. Because it gets right into your bloodstream and goes right to your brain um, through 
the lungs. There's only one cell there that it travels through. And so um, this can be a really great way for mothers to help their children who may be having a cold and uh, like for little babies who maybe aren't able to um, take any other natural remedy as easily if they just can set up um, like a pine essential oil diffuser or boil some pine needles of the white pine in a pot on the stove and just let that, the smell, and we're going to hopefully get to it, of pine is so healing for our immune system. Um, and this is just fascinating to me, the different percentages of yields. This is, at the top you'll see there's basil, and it says what percentage of the plant is essential oil. So uh, lavender, that's what we have there at the booth. Um, there's, it's up to 1% on the higher range. The, the, less, the lesser range is 0.5% to 1% of that ball of lavender that you saw in the last picture is essential oil. So a ball like this might yield like this much essential oil. But that's a lot when you compare it to rose essential oil. Can you see that third from the bottom? And at the top I wrote it, rose is 0.006% essential oil, and that's why it's so expensive if you've ever looked for rose absolute, the essential oil of that. Um, and usually you just find rose water because that's um, less expensive. <laughs> so um, rose is super expensive, and I don't know if I have it right here, but it takes 60,000 rose, roses for one ounce of oil. I think that's just fascinating. Um, and it takes 10,000 roses to fill a single 5 milliliter size um, bottle. That's 100 drops of oil. So 10,000 roses. So if uh, you want to show somebody that you love them, maybe that could be one way. Very extreme. <laughs> um, and storing essential oils is very similar to storing um, other oils, but one with one exception. You always want it in a dark glass bottle, preferably stored out of the light. Keep the tight, it tightly sealed and out of the reach of children. Remember, this is highly concentrated. And never use plastic um, for undiluted oils because this is, it's basically a solvent and it will dissolve plastic. Um, you can store uh, other, other oils like what we'll talk about now. Um, herbal oils in plastic, but still it's recommended to use glass generally, but it won't have the same you won't uh, put a hole through your through your glass through your plastic if you do use it for an infused oil so an infused oil this is where we're going to spend more of our time is um, this is fascinating to me. It can be 70 times more effective at delivering oil-soluble phytochemicals into the bloodstream than when digested. So topically applying a oil that we're going to talk about how to make it um, can be actually very effective at getting those medicinal properties into the skin. And um, many of the plant properties are oil-soluble, and that includes alkaloids um, and at least poly... Yeah, many of those can be soluble in the oil. So what does it look like to make a 
infused oil. It's a lot less complicated as far as you don't need a lot of fancy machinery like you saw for essential oils. All you need is a glass jar and your plant material and your, your medium, your oil. And if you are using fresh herb, you're going to fill the jar right up to the top with that fresh herb. Um, and then you're going to cover it completely in the oil and then screw your lid on nice and tight and let it sit for four weeks. There is a catch here. Um, and make sure you label your oil because you might think I'm going to remember when I started this, but just put that date on there and you'll be thankful you did. Um, and so the catch with this is it's, we want, is the moisture content of your herb. So a lot of times it's nice to use herbs as fresh as possible, but if you use fresh herbs that haven't been wilted or dried at all for an oil, your nose will tell you in two weeks later when you open it. Um, I had a few friends that, who did this, and I said I would never do that, but then one day I did, and I opened my comfrey oil that I thought I had, I thought my herbs were dry enough, and I opened it, and sure enough, it smelled horrific. So if you use a fresh herb that has hasn't been wilted, hasn't been dried enough, then um, just by sealing it off, that will turn putrefying in just a couple of weeks. So uh, my recommendation is just sticking with dried herbs um, until you become a little bit more familiar with it. And then you can start using fresher herbs. But still, when you use fresher herbs, you want to allow them to wilt down for a few hours before um, placing them in your jar and covering them with the oil. There are some herbs that are um, very good to use fresh, like St. John's wort. Um, that's one that is better to um, make into an infused oil fresh. Also California poppy, garlic, and that's more of a safe one. You, can, you don't have to be so afraid of that turning um, putrefying. So garlic, uh, mullein flowers, that's a pretty safe one as well. And arnica, um, that would be one to let wilt down. But generally, if you just use dry herbs and just dry them and then use them immediately to make your infusion so they're as fresh as possible, um, that would be the most, the highest quality oil that you could have. So this is the, the cold method, the solar method of infusing an oil. The next one we're going to look at is um, a crockpot method. And this is my lesser preferred method because it uses heat and when you're not careful, it can destroy some of the properties just by heating them up. Um, we are going to heat them to make the salve, but the less heat, the better that you have. Yeah, so the other one was two to four weeks. I prefer four weeks, allowing it to sit in the jar. Um, and some people say put it in the... Sh a sh a dark place and some people say put it in a sunny place and it just depends on who you're reading what they say but I think generally you're going toward, more towards sun um, I like putting my jar in the sun especially St. John's wort uh, it turns the oil into a beautiful red color and it's a lot of fun to see um, just the different colors change and I think just that limited four-week period in the sunshine is not going to hurt it. You just don't want to leave it in the sunlight for an extended, for um, months on end. 
So the crockpot method, you would use this um, when you don't have a lot of time. Maybe you're going to Adagra and you wanted to make some salves to sell, and so you might say, oh, it's getting late. And so you might use that to make your infused oil. But again, I find that the quality is better. You have less risk of um, deep frying your herbs when you just use the solar method. The ratio generally is a 1 to 10 ratio by weight. One part herb, 10 parts oil or simply just covering your herbs one to two inches with oil. Um, so on this note, um, extra virgin olive oil and grapeseed oil are most naturally resistant to oxidation. Olive oil is tolerant to higher heat, so it's better to use for a crockpot infusion or a hot extract. Olive Grapeseed, it's very high in antioxidants. And so olive oil is generally the herb, the oil we use for um, salves, and it's more tolerant for this heating method. Okay. So just a quick look at different oils that can be used. I, if I'm just making a healing salve, generally I just use olive oil. Um, but you do have other options, especially if you want to uh, mix it up and use some of your oil for face creams. Um, for face creams, I like to use grapeseed oil because it's a little bit lighter of an oil. There's also avocado oil, almond oil, apricot oil, coconut, and jojoba oil. And they each have different um, benefits, avocado being rich um, but also light at the same time, and it doesn't have a strong odor. So olive oil has a little bit more of an odor. If you're trying to make a light cream with like a face cream that somebody's going to be putting on, it's nice to use an oil that doesn't have a strong odor, like olive oil. Um, and olive oil does, it has a lot of antioxidants, but it can tend to go rancid um, like more quickly than something like jojoba oil. Um, okay, and for so these are the ingredients we're going to use for making just a simple sap. You're going to um, infuse your oil with whatever herbs you choose. You need some beeswax, uh, essential oil if you choose, and vitamin E. And vitamin E is going to act like a like a preservative. It's just going to help with the shelf life, and it's also very healing for the skin. But if you're wanting to make something like a lip balm, you could add something like um, shea butter and coconut oil, even maybe a little jojoba, and these will add a buttery, um, just a thickening aspect to it for your lip balms. And so what we'll need for equipment is going to be a small pot or double boiler. A double boiler is nice because you have less risk of scorching your oil You'll need a stove. Um, also, on that note, stove, a something like a gas stove is better than electric because you can really control. If you want the heat off, then you can turn it off, and it's off. Um, of course, your what your thing is sitting on is going to be still a little bit warm, but the flame is gone. Um, with a electric, you know, just being aware that maybe it's better to take it off the heat. Um, so. 
I know the herbalists that I first studied with really appreciated gas stoves for that purpose. Um, but anyone should work. A thermometer. Um, this isn't absolutely essential, but I recommend it just so that you can be aware of, especially as you're starting out, of how hot your oil and your beeswax are getting so that, you know, it's easy just to crank up the heat, melt it, and get the party going and started and get the job done quick. Um, and, but if you're not, if you're heating it up too quickly, you're damaging and losing some of your medicinal properties. So um, if you are being very sensitive to heating it up slowly, it will take a little bit more time. Um, but I feel like it's worth it for preserving the quality. A glass measuring cup, spoons and spatulas, containers, and labels. So the, I don't know if you can see, I like to use like a little candy thermometer um, for sticking it right into my um, pot, into whatever, the beeswax or so. So the first step is going to be to melt. So we're going to, this is a, a little bit of a recipe as well, but you can just, um, it's a ratio, so you can add or decrease as much as you'd like. So uh, melt one ounce of beeswax in a double boiler. Um, then add four ounces of infused oil, keeping the temperature below 120. And so um, beeswax has a higher melting point than your oil. Obviously, your oil is already liquid. So you're, that's why I would recommend melting your beeswax prior to um, adding your oil. The way I learned was just put it all together and then put it in the pot and slowly raise the temperature. That takes a long time because you're trying to keep the temperature low but still melt the beeswax. So the smaller pieces that your beeswax is, the smaller the particles are, the faster they'll melt. So um, we'll talk about that in a moment. But I find that if you just melt your beeswax and slowly pour in your oil and stir it as you're pouring it in, it will help the beeswax stay um, thinner and smaller and remelt again. It will, as you see in this picture, that's, um, I just poured it straight in, but the second batch that I made, I poured it more slowly and it just um, didn't solidify quite as much. The dark, or the, I guess it's actually lighter, the solid looking outer circle is the beeswax that rehardens as you pour the cold oil on top of it. So you just pour slowly to warm up your oil and keep your beeswax, um, liquid until you finally get all your oil in there. Um, and at this point, you can even turn off the heat. Once your, um, your beeswax is melted, just take it off the heat, turn off the heat. Your beeswax is, the, the double boiler is nice and warm enough to keep that beeswax liquefied. Um, but, and then you can just use that heat and slowly the, the oil's gonna cool it down a little bit so it comes to a nice temperature. Um, okay. Then next, uh, after you have finished mixing in your oil and your beeswax, we're going to add in the vitamin E and the essential oils. We want to add that in when it's still liquid, but at a cooler temperature than being still on the stove. Why? Because essential oils are volatile, right? And they will evaporate very quickly when they're in a hot environment. That's how we created them. Um, so we're going to add two teaspoons of vitamin E oil 
And the ratio of the vitamin E, as you can tell, we're making four ounces of uh, salve or four ounces of oil. So the ratio there is about a um, teaspoon to two ounces or half a teaspoon to one ounce of oil of the vitamin E. That's a good ratio for a preservative if you're using vitamin E as a, like a preservative for your oil, a little just to help it not to go bad as soon. Um, and then again, on that uh, recipe ratio, the, um, there's a really nice website where a lady just simply did a little experiment. One of the things when I learned how to make salves, um, the herbalist that I worked with, she was kind of a very, um, just do it and, and try to perfect it as you go along. She didn't really have like recipes that she followed specifically. It was just like, oh, we'll try it and try it and make it work. Um, but so it was always like a guessing game for me. How much oil, uh, beeswax do I actually use? And that can be, apply to some extent because um, depending on where you are, if you live in a warmer climate, it might, um, you might need a little bit more beeswax. And if you live in a colder climate, you might need a little less. Um, but a good ratio is found with... Um, if you just look up beeswax ratio and salves on Google, that's how I found this lady who has humble bee and me, and that's on the um, handout that I put out just because I thought it was so nice what she did. And she did uh, just, I think she did about 10 um, different samples, uh, 1 to 10 ratio to um, 1 to 1 ratio, and she just explained each ratio. And the nicest ones was about either uh, 1 to 5 would make a very firm sap and a one to four would make a, a softer sap. So that's all of that that I just said was just to say one to five is firm and one to four is a softer sap. So it depends on what you're looking for. Um, a chapstick would generally tend to be a little bit more firm. So you'd want a little bit more ratio uh, of the beeswax. So what I, in our um, little recipe we had here, we did a one to four ratio. We had one ounce of beeswax to four ounces of oil. And then we're going to pour it into our jar and put the label on and the date. So this is just a little list of natural preservatives. We used vitamin E in our example. Um, there's also a tincture of benzoin that I don't, I don't know too much about except for that it's, a, it's from a tree. Um, and also things like myrrh is also another resin from a tree that's very preservative. And just simply, if you're, um, you are doing an infusion of sage or rosemary, that will also prolong the shelf life. Those are very antiseptic and they're um, going to be a preservative naturally. Um, essential oils are also natural preservatives and grapefruit seed extract. So just a quick note on beeswax, you, there's different options that you can try. I mentioned um, the smaller the particle, the quicker it will melt. Um, the, if you ever do an herbal apprenticeship, uh, they might put you to work in grading beeswax. That's not a very in, enjoyable job necessarily. It's, very, it's a lot of work. And the, the more you've been using that, be, that grater for grading your beeswax, the less sharp it's going to get over time. And you're going to have to basically dedicate that grater to beeswax because it's very hard to clean afterwards. But it works, and I've used it. Um, people have come up with making um, beeswax pellets and 
different people have different feelings about beeswax pellets. They work well. Some people feel like maybe they're not as fresh, maybe because of the something that they put on them to keep them from sticking together. But really, they are a wonderful option as well. Um, and also, you can get the in one ounce bars that you can just use that straight. Um, whichever one you find, I really like getting a chunk of beeswax. I love the, the rich smell that they give. And that's really what you're looking for is just um, a deep color and a rich aroma because there's actually medicinal properties in the beeswax itself as well. Um, just talk to anyone who produces honey and they'll talk to you for a long time about all of the goodness that there is to be had there. So just look for something that is um, full of a nice, rich smell. Uh, there's another way to getting your beeswax down to a nice size that you can use if you have a big chunk of beeswax, is putting it into something like a pillowcase and smashing it with a hammer. And surprisingly, it will crumble into these soft little pieces um, as you smash it, and that's a pretty neat way. Just make sure you have a nice hard surface that you're doing it on, like go outside and use your brick sidewalk or something like that. Okay, so this is just a, a quick list, and we're going to look more specifically at the, as time permits, um, these different ones. So calendula, chickweed, comfrey, lavender, pine, plantain, Arnica, myrrh, marigold, golden seal, St. John's Word, and yarrow. These are all very, just generally very good herbs for topically treating the skin. And there's a little asterisk next to chickweed, pine, and plantain. And these are um, drawing herbs. When you think about them, they, pine in particular, pine pitch, is um, very good for drawing out like splinters and things inside the skin. Plantain and chickweed are often used for things like bee, bee stings. Um, just if, you, if your child gets a bee sting, you may have heard or be familiar with getting a leaf of plantain that's clean, chewing it up, or masticating it somehow, and applying it, um, adding just a little bit of moisture um, to masticate it and put it on the bee sting, and it will... Um, help the pain to go away almost immediately. Um, this is a nice little list for things like pain, um, arnica flower, and the I-O stands for infused oil, and the E-O stands for essential oil. So um, once a lot of people want to know what can they use for pain, arnica flowers is specific for like bruises. Um, it's very good for healing bruises. Ginger, uh, muscle pain, Peppermint, clove, St. John's wort, and cayenne. Um, and St. John's wort is um, known for helping with nerves, nervous um, externally as well as I many. If you're if you've done any study into herbs, um, you'll be aware that St. John's wort is a common one for what depression, right? But it's also externally, and there are precautions. We're not doing a talk about internal things, but um, it's also good externally for nerves, even though it's more, people are more familiar with it internally. Um, for burns, you'll be looking at things like chickweed, plantain, St. John's wort, lavender, and golden seal. 
and relaxing. Things like chamomile, lavender, and rose are excellent. And um, one herbalist I know likes this as like a relaxing salve for maybe children, trying to get them to go to bed in the evening. So we don't have time for a break, but we have <laughs> a little bit of time for um, to go into the specifics. And maybe we'll just flash through these quickly. I know, I think we have, we're about eight minutes away from my finishing time, I think. But my min, it's just lunch after this, right? So we can just kind of, no. <laughs> um, so are there any questions? Maybe this is a good point to pause and then we can keep going. If there's a question on what's been presented so far, yes. I've seen you've been patient in the back. Okay, the question was, are um, the herbs that were under the list of wounds and sores, this is a good list of herbs you can make into an infused oil. Or if you have the essential oil, you can add that to um, a, a salve that you're making. Like lavender, you can infuse it to make uh, infused oil, but generally I'll just add it um, as an essential oil to my infused oil. So does that answer the question? Mm-hmm. So if you want to make a plantain salve, which would be a wonderful healing salve, you would infuse some olive oil with some plantain leaves and let it sit for four weeks. And then when you go to make it into a salve, you would strain off your um, leaves. You would, so you would only have your oil left over. And then you would put that into your mix. And then once it's cooled, you'd add your essential oils of lavender or whatever, uh, maybe some myrrh or frankincense. Or... But generally, these are to infuse. Yes, to make an infused oil, any of these would make a wonderful infused oil, except for like, um, I mean, you can make an infused oil out of peppermint, but like, to, it's um, it's great for a pain salve. It would be even more potent as an essential oil, like olive oil. So, what was the question? Yeah, you can use any of those that were listed to make a salve. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry I didn't put that. Um, it's approximately, and I, it's um, something like 20 drops. You could do 10 to 20 drops. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was how many drops of essential oil for the recipe of the salve that was there? 10 to 20 drops. Mm-hmm. Amen. Praise God. Beautiful testimony of how a man who lost his finger, um, but it was so painful when they, they healed it with the nerves that they used a cayenne salve to um, take away that nerve pain and help it to heal properly. I think I saw one here first. Yeah, great question. And that's what I love about one of those slides that said that 70% of the oil-soluble products will can be transferred into the infused oil. So you will get... Um, some of that. The essential oils are more potent and you need to dilute those with a carrier oil. Um, but yes, I believe that you do and, and you can take advantage of those through poultices and different... Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that five to one ratio, um, even you could go to six or seven to one ratio for something, yeah, I think just upping your ratio more to like a seven to one ratio and you'll have something very firm. But if you just look up um, humble bee and me, um, salve ratio, beeswax salve ratio, that will maybe give you, she does a really nice job of um, documenting what she did so you don't have to go and do it so much, the trial and error. But yeah, using uh, something like coconut oil is tricky because at room temperature it's solid, so you think that it's nice and solid, but maybe when you throw it in your purse it'll melt. So that's, that does make it a little tricky. So you, yeah. Yes? She was asking about what the IO and the EO stood for, essential oil and an infused oil. That's a, a very good question. Um, so the um, olive oil can go rancid within a year. Um, and by adding a preservative or more essential oils, that will help to prolong the shelf life. Um, one salve, commercial salve maker did say that she switched to using jojoba oil because it's, more, it's actually more of a wax than an a oil, so it didn't go rancid as, as quickly. Could witch be made as an infused? I imagine it could be. Um, yeah. Could cloves be made as an uh, infused oil? Because I have it here on this pain salve recipe. This is actually a recipe that I saw that I thought, this looks like a very a very good recipe, so I thought I'd share it. Um, but And they recommended the clove essential oil. You could do an infused oil with it. Uh, it probably wouldn't be as potent, but... Um, a way to make your infused oils more potent is simply do the first infusion, strain off the old herbs, and then infuse the same oil again with fresh herbs. So you can just add to the, make it doubly potent. So if you wanted to try um, doing that, I think it could be good. I thought it would be fun just to, to let you see the difference in the colors. Some of them are a little harder to see because it's a little more subtle maybe. But this is a calendula salve. This is actually made from oil that we infused in our last year's class. Did I say calendula? What, what is it, everyone? What? That's a good guess. It's cayenne. Cayenne. Um, so that would be a good pain salve. Cayenne has something called substance P, which blocks the pain um, sensation. It blocks the, the brain from being able to sense pain. This is a calendula salve. It's going to be the lighter color. And then this one here is a, a comfrey salve. It's a little bit greener color. And you can really see it clearly um, in one slide. Well, I don't know if this lighting will let you see it clearly. Oh, no, I think I took that picture out for some reason. But I had each oil lined up together. But... Yeah, that's a picture of how your oils can change color just by what's inside of it. Okay, any other questions? Yeah, a dehydrator it, for drying your herbs at a low temperature can be very good. Again, you just want to um, monitor, just make sure that it's in that range of um, about 100, 110. Keep it very low. And then don't leave it in there too long. Uh, uh, 
Once it's dry, take it out and pack it away. But that's an excellent option. It just limits you to how much you can do. Yeah. All right. Okay. Um, for those who would like, I would like to just give God some glory and pray. And I, I think I failed to pray at the beginning. So I apologize for that. Because he is the only one who, who provides these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, to you belongs all glory and honor. Um, you are the one who created these things. You've freely given them to us. And um, we want to receive them and freely share them with the hurting world around us. So please um, give us your eyes have your um, discernment, your spiritual discernment, that we could see our need of you and come, and that we could also have discernment for the times that we live in. Um, thank you so much for the time that we've been able to share together, and I pray for each one who's going home that you will empower them with courage and with joy in using these natural remedies. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.